Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come before you today just grateful to be gathered with your people, to worship you together, to lift our voices in praise, to sing together of your mighty work, your mighty acts, and your heart for us, your heart for the lost, your heart for the nations. God, we sing that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours, that you would give us eyes to see those around us as you see them, that you would give us the ability to love others with the extravagant love that you have loved us. And that is not only our song, but that is our prayer. And so, Father, we just ask that you would help us to see the world around us that is perishing without you through your eyes, to have a heart for the world around us that is perishing without you, that is aligned with your heart for this world. And we just thank you, Father, that in your great love with which you loved us, that though in the first Adam we all find ourselves broken by sin, in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we can find ourselves redeemed when we place our trust in you. We ask that you would be with us in our time together today as we enter into your word, that you would open our hearts, our eyes, our minds to see what you would have for us today, God. And I pray specifically that you would allow my words to be yours, that you would empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit, that I may speak the things only that you would have me to speak. We pray that you would bless our time together today, that we would be edified by it as you are glorified by it. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And as we get going today, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if this is maybe your first time or you're relatively new in worshiping with us, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here as an assistant pastor at Cross Community Church. And I'm always grateful for the opportunity to be able to lead us together in our time of worship in the Word. I'm originally from a small town, what used to be a small town, uh, just southeast of Raleigh, North Carolina, called Clayton. In the first service, I spoke with someone after who was actually from Clayton also. That amazes me. Uh, because even though it's a larger town now, it was really small uh, when I was growing up there in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so uh, in this small town, we lived in a rural area, but my grandparents lived within the city limits. And so during the summers, I would go and stay with my grandparents, and they would kind of watch over me. I would help them do some things around their house. But if there was nothing else that I needed to be doing, I would just jump on my bike, and I would take off, and I would explore around town. I would go down and hang out by the town hall or the police station or the fire station. Uh, I would go over by the railroad tracks and stand there as trains go by. It was thrilling for a 10-year-old boy. Uh, and I had a buddy from school. We weren't great friends, but we knew each other. We were acquaintances, and he lived in town. His name was Jamie, and so he and I got to where we would connect, uh, and we'd ride our bikes around town and do stuff, and, and we'd go put uh, pennies on the railroad tracks when the train run over them. Kids, ignore that, uh, but uh, it smashes them and makes them really, look really cool. So we, never, we weren't getting into any like major mischief, but we would just do little things like that. But one day, we were biking past uh, the concrete facility, a place in town that made concrete uh, for the trucks to be loaded up and, and hauled off with them. And at this concrete plant, there were two large 
mounds. One was a really large mound of sand, and one was a really large mound of rock, of gravel. And of course, to a 10-year-old boy, I mean, that, the temptation was just too much. And so as we were going past those things, we decided to jump off our bikes and go play on these uh, mounds of dirt and gravel. And we told each other, hey, we, we knew enough that we really probably weren't supposed to be there. Uh, and so we told each other, hey, we need to look out for one another. And if you see someone come in or something happening, we need to warn each other so we don't get in trouble and we can scoot. And so we go to playing and doing things. And, and at one point, uh, we're separated. I'm not sure where Jamie's at, but I'm climbing up the hill of gravel, of rocks. And as I get up near the top of it, I hear, and this thing, I'm, to my 10-year-old mind, it seemed like it was two or three stories. Maybe it wasn't that tall. But I hear a noise, and as I kind of peek over the top, I can see a large front end loader coming at the pile of gravel. And so not really thinking through, you know, the next three or four steps, I just kind of tuck down where the, where the driver, I thought, couldn't see me. And the next memory I have is of this avalanche of rocks coming down on top of me and literally completely burying me in the gravel. And when I say completely burying, no light, can't breathe, can't see, I thought, this is it. I'm done. My short life is over at 10. Jamie, nowhere to be found. Don't know where that dude's at. He's took off. The next thing I feel is this large hand reaching into the rocks and snatching me up. And it was the operator of the front end loader. He had seen, I guess, my feet maybe go over as he was pushing rock. And he snatched me out of there. He dressed me down. And then, thankfully, just sent me on my way. So I go and I find my bike and I go and find Jamie. And he looks at me and he's like, man, what happened to you? <laughs> I'm like, dude, where were you? We were supposed to be looking out for each other. We were supposed to make sure that neither one of us got in trouble. And because Jamie was so focused on what he was doing, he was so engrossed in, his, in himself and his own life, he was completely oblivious to the fact that I almost died, that I nearly perished at the fact that he was just checked out and not even paying attention. And as we turn our attention to the book of Jonah today, we're going to see that if if we are not careful, there's times in our life where we can be either through our own disobedience to God or just a lack of focus and just focusing on ourselves and not being focused in on our call to the world around us, that because of our uh, lack of attention, us being oblivious to the world around us, that those around us are in danger of perishing if we do not warn them. Over the last 13 weeks, uh, prior to Easter, we went through uh, a series on what the church was, and we defined all the different elements of the church. And I'm so grateful for that series that Pastor Taylor had put together and led us through. I'm also grateful that it's recorded, because I'm convinced that I think that message series is really going to serve a lot of utility and a lot of purpose for us uh, in the days, weeks, months ahead, as we continue to wrestle within a culture that is consistently redefining things and having a rooted, firm definition in the church. And here at Cross, we try to be committed to preaching, not try, we are committed to preaching through the whole counsel of God's Word. And so from time to time, as we've spent time in the New Testament, we're now going to go back and spend a series in the Old Testament. So to give us a little context, because maybe some of you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament leading up to where we're going to be today in Jonah, the Old Testament really covers the entirety, not only of the history of our creation, but the history of the nation of Israel. We see initially in the first five books of Scripture, which we refer to as the Pentateuch, the first five books where God creates the earth, where God 
creates mankind, where he populates the earth, and where eventually Abraham would become the father of not just Israel, but of all nations, of many nations. And so we see through Abraham's life where there's promised a nation, where there's promised a coming Messiah one day. And then we track through that to where eventually Israel does become a nation. They find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And so Moses is then called to lead them out of Egypt towards the promised land. After years of wandering because of their own disobedience, Joshua then leads the nation of Israel into the land that God had promised them, the land of their inheritance, which is still the land that Israel dwells in and occupies to this day. Uh, Joshua leads the nation into different tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and settling in each of their different tribal areas of inheritance. And then eventually, the nation of Israel wants a king, like the kings that are around them. And so after their own first choice of king, God then raises up his first choice of king in David. And we see that David rules the nation for years, followed by his son Solomon. But after Solomon, we see that there's a split. And we see that the nation of Israel is divided into what we refer to as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom being the ten primary tribes of the nation of Israel and the southern kingdom being Judah and Benjamin. And these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, then each have their own kings. And then throughout the bulk of the remainder of the New Testament, we see this consistent pattern of righteous and good kings that are striving to lead the nation of Israel towards God followed by evil kings who are leading the nation of Israel away from God. And the overall trajectory over that time is a nation that is moving further and further away from their God. And it's through this time period that we receive the writings of the prophets. In Scripture, we see consistently throughout these up and down years that God sent his messengers, the prophets, both to warn of pending judgment if Israel would not repent and turn from their Uh, running from God, turning to him, and also to proclaim a future deliverance that was prepared for the nation that would come at the hand of a Messiah that we know was fulfilled in Jesus. And while we have figures from Israel's history that are all prophets in some sense, in Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Elisha, when we think about the prophets from a biblical perspective, from a perspective of books of the Old Testament, we have what we know of as the writing prophets, the 16 books of the Old Testament that capture the writings of these prophets that we usually divide into categories of major and minor. And the four major prophets are Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. The other 12 we know of as the minor prophets, and Jonah is included in that 12. And while we use these categories of major and minor uh, to, to qualify them, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the, the importance of the individual or the importance of their message but is strictly related to the amount of prophetic material that we have available from these prophets. And so as such, the subject of our series that we launched today, Jonah, even though he's designated as a minor prophet, nonetheless holds a major message for us in our day. As we focus our attention on Jonah, we find something unusual about him in comparison with the other 15 writing prophets. Almost always we find a lot of common themes in the prophets and their message. We see that typically the prophets will assert that they are speaking on behalf of the Lord. We'll see phrases like, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to the individual. And so we know they are speaking with the authority of God and on his behalf to the people. The prophet usually affirms that Israel is God's covenant 
people. They are, they are the covenant people of God. And they often proclaim a message of repentance in order to try to draw the nation of Israel away from their disobedience, away from their running, so that they can continue to experience the blessing and the favor of the Lord and fulfill their calling to be a light to the nations. And many of the prophets will proclaim and prophesy the day that Jesus would come and deliver not only the nation of Israel, but each and every one of us who turn to him by faith. In addition to the commonalities in the prophet's message, we see a lot of common things uh, in terms of what the prophets are called to do. They're often called to very difficult or even unpleasant tasks in the fulfillment of their commission. Hosea, we looked at a few months back, Hosea was actually called by God to marry a prostitute as an extreme object lesson to the nation of Israel of how they were continually leaving their first love in God and going after other gods. Daniel was called to live nearly his entire life in subjection and a servant of an occupying government. Isaiah was told to walk around naked for three years as a sign of God's judgment. That's awkward, right? Ezekiel was instructed to lie on his side for 14 months and then eat a barley cake baked on cow dung and then later told his wife would die and he was just to carry on like it was any other day. And Jeremiah was told that even though he consistently poured out his heart in calling the nation of Israel to repentance, that they would consistently reject him and his message and that he would see them ultimately carried away into captivity. The life of a prophet was hard. It was not glamorous. It was not easy. And yet these men repeatedly obeyed even the most difficult of commands in the fulfillment of their calling, in the fulfillment of their commission. And then we have Jonah. And we don't know a lot about Jonah, but what we can put together is that he was already active as a prophet by the time we meet him in the book that bears his name. Jonah actually served as a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. There was two kings in the northern kingdom named Jeroboam. He served under the second. He was a contemporary of two other prophets, Amos and Hosea. All three of these men were prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel at the same time. And he immediately preceded the prophets of Micah and Isaiah, who would then begin prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. So all of this would have put him active around 760 B.C. and following. We know that before we meet him, he had some success in his prophetic calling. We see in 2 Kings that one of Israel's national enemies at the time, Assyria, had been besieging Israel. Israel had been being persecuted and sieged and invaded by the nation of Assyria. And even though Jeroboam was an evil king, and we'll see in the text in a minute, he did what was evil in the sight of God. Nonetheless, God used Jonah to prophesy to Jeroboam too and the nation of Israel that God was going to, in fact, restore the national security, the borders of the nation of Israel, because his promise was to always maintain a remnant for himself. Second Kings 14 is where we first meet Jonah. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And he reigned for 41 years. And what he did was evil, excuse me, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that was Jeroboam 1, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath 
For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So we learn directly or by inference here a few details about Jonah, namely that he had a prophetic ministry to Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. We learned that his father was named Amittai, which interestingly means truth. So that would mean Jonah's name was literally son of truth. He was from gath Hefer, which was a city within the territory of the tribe of Zebulun. Zebulun's tribal inheritance was near the sea. And gath Hefer was actually the, ne- the neighboring town to Nazareth, where Jesus and his family would eventually settle as they came back out of Egypt. And importantly, we see here from the history of 2 Kings, that leading up to Jonah's ministry, Israel had been plagued and invaded by its national enemy, Assyria. And that's going to be important as we begin to look at the book of Jonah. You know, learning and instruction can typically come in two ways. Hopefully, we can look at someone as a positive example and see from their life uh, the things that they do and how they honor God and follow Him and, and learn to try to emulate and model that behavior. But at times, we can come across the opposite example where we see someone who's not doing what we should be doing. And so we learn from that example what not to do and what behaviors to avoid. And thus we find that in the prophet Jonah. And while we have an overwhelmingly positive witness across the other prophets, what we have in Jonah is just the opposite. One final note of introduction in regard to Jonah before we dive into his book. Over the centuries and increasingly in our day, there's at times been a move to treat some of the more incredible events of the biblical narrative as allegorical or as poetic or as myth. And specific to Jonah, some have even tried to write off this prophetic narrative as allegory or parable because intellectually they might wrestle with how can a man be swallowed by a large fish and survive for three days? So spoiler alert, if you've not read the book of Jonah, Jonah gets swallowed by a large fish and survives for three days. And we're going to learn more about that in the weeks ahead. However, whenever available, we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. Oftentimes, we get the key to understanding what's going on by other parts of Scripture, and what we see in the case of Jonah is that Jesus himself gives us the key to how we review the events of what we read in Jonah's life. Jesus is being, being questioned at one point by the scribes and the Pharisees, asking for a sign to prove that he is the coming Messiah. And Matthew records the interchange The interchange as follows in Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus specifically refers to Jonah as the prophet, historically, as an individual from history. Jesus speaks of the events of Jonah's life, of being swallowed by a fish, as historical events, when he says, just as Jonah was swallowed by the fish and then uses them to relate that to a a pending historic event that he will accomplish himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus recalls the actual response of Nineveh 
to Jonah's eventual preaching to them. So we see here from the testimony of Jesus himself that the book of Jonah is in fact to be held as historical. For us as New Covenant, New Testament people, believers, we understand that the New Testament looks back on the finished work of Christ. But throughout the Old Testament, everything that we see is pointing towards the day that Christ would come. And so as we enter into a study of an Old Testament book, like we were about to do today in Jonah, we want to consistently be asking ourselves the question, how does this point me to what Christ will ultimately accomplish? And so with that in mind today, let's dive into our study in Jonah as we look at the fact that we are rarely more like Jesus than when we pursue even our enemies with God's life-saving truth. Look at me at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So first we see God's directive to his prophet. God's directive to his prophet. As, as we've already established by way of introduction, God's prophets were his mouthpiece. They were often given direct messages by God of what to do, what to say, where to go. And so Jonah here receives very clear, unambiguous, direct instruction from the Lord. God says, arise. He's saying, Jonah, it's time to move. You've had a great successful ministry there in Samaria, prophesying to the nation of Israel that I'm going to restore their borders. Now here's your next mission. It's time for the next thing that I'm calling you to. He says, go to Nineveh. Now this is very significant as we understand Jonah's ministry up to this point. Because if you're not up to speed on your ancient Near East geography, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. If you recall back to 2 Kings 14 that we just looked at, Jonah's prophetic ministry up to this point had been prophesying against Assyria and towards the success of the nation of Israel. And now his ministry is to turn from the nation of Israel towards Israel's enemy. It's as if God is saying, hey, Jonah, you've done a great job in preaching to the nation of Israel. Now I want you to go preach to the one who is oppressing you. And we understand that. It helps us maybe shed a little bit more light on Jonah's hesitancy. The reason that Jonah struggled so much with this calling to go to Nineveh. God tells him what to say. He says, call out against it. Literally, God is saying, Jonah, I want you to go and let Nineveh know that I am opposed to them. Why? He says, because their evil has come up before me. God's saying, Jonah, just like you, I'm opposed to your enemy, Assyria. But my heart is for them, and I want you to go and preach a message of of repentance to them. And if we don't know God, if we're not fully familiar with his character, maybe we've just surveyed some of the Old Testament. Maybe we think God is, man, God's just God of, of wrath, and we're accustomed to him pronouncing judgment on the nations that would oppose Israel and even using Israel to execute that judgment at time to time. This might sound strange to us, but if we fully understand the consistent heart and character of God that we see not only in the New Testament, but all throughout the Old, we see that God's heart is a heart for not just Israel, but for the nations. Abraham, who was the father of our faith, was told not only that he would be the father of a nation, Israel, but he would be the father of many nations. We see that in Genesis 17. Isaiah would prophesy that Israel was to be a light unto the nations, that one of the primary reasons 
for Israel to be God's covenant chosen people was for them to show the light and the love of God to the nations around them. The psalmists often speak of God being exalted, not just in Israel, but throughout the nations. We see it in Psalm 46, Psalm 67, Psalm 62, Psalm 45, our banner verse, speaks to this truth and this reality. Jesus in the Great Commission carries this forward into the New Testament. We see that our activities, our commission is to be outwardly focused. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And in the final book of scripture, the book of Revelation, God gives the apostle John a grand vision of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, including Assyria, worshiping around his throne in Revelation 7. Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, the enemy of, the, of Israel, was at this moment in history the focus of God's redemptive mercy and grace. And though Jonah had been validated as a prophet and successfully prophesying to Jeroboam and the nation of Israel, now that Israel's borders are secure, he was being told, now, Jonah, I want you to go preach to your enemy in the heart of their capital. Let's continue reading in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So first we saw God's directive to his prophet. Now we see Jonah's disobedience to his God. We see verse 3 begins with the phrase, but Jonah. You know, so often we're accustomed to looking for uh, areas of Scripture where we see something that might be difficult, a difficult command, a difficult situation, a point of doubt, a point of tension, a point of challenge, and we see the phrase, but God, and it holds with it great promise of what God has from store for us. But rarely is it good when we see, but Jonah, but us, when there's a but in front of our response to what God has called us to God had directed Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. And we don't know with certainty where Tarshish is today, but what we can discern is that it was most likely in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. If Jonah was still in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, where he had been prophesied to the nation of Israel, then Nineveh would have been due northeast from his position. So he would have needed to go northeast to travel to Nineveh to follow the Lord's directive. And yet, he goes to Joppa. Joppa is a seaport town along the coast of the Mediterranean, and Joppa is directly due southwest from Samaria. And so what we see is instead of going northeast to the city of Nineveh, Jonah goes southwest to the city of Joppa, directly in the opposite direction from where the Lord had told him to go. And not only does he go down to Joppa, he boards a ship to sail even further west which would put Tarshish probably somewhere in the, in the western Mediterranean or northern Africa or over in that region. The language that is used here in the text is that Jonah was directly disobeying God's command and attempting to do exactly the opposite of what God had directed. Twice we see that Jonah went down. We see that he went down to Joppa instead of up to Nineveh. We see that he went down into the ship instead of up and following the Lord's call. And twice we see the phrase, from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was trying to go anywhere but 
Nineveh. And he is so opposed to the Lord's command that not only is he trying to escape God's directive, but he's doing everything he can to escape the Lord himself. It's important to note here that Jonah's rebellion was not illegal. Jonah went down to the ship. He didn't stow away on the ship to Tarshish. He went and presented himself as a passenger. He paid the fare and joined the crew to travel with them to Tarshish. And at this point, the sailors have no idea what's going on with Jonah. They're about to find out, but they have no idea in this moment. And so the, what strikes me there is externally, we can be running from God, but externally, everything can appear to be just as it should be. We can be doing all the right things, saying all the right things, obeying all the laws of man, and to everyone else around us, they're none the wiser. But internally, we can be all the while walking in disobedience to something God has clearly shown us to do, clearly commanded for us. And what we need to understand, church, is that rebellion against God always drives us from being close to him. God has created us to be in fellowship and in union with him. He has accomplished that for us in Christ. And that position in Christ, when we place our faith and trust in him, that position is eternally secure. Nothing will ever change that position. And yet our fellowship, our closeness, our communion with our God is directly impacted, can be directly disrupted when we are walking in disobedience to his commands. And while we might try to avoid his commands that are difficult or challenging or things that we would just really rather not do, no matter how hard we try to outrun God, we learn that we cannot outrun his presence. And we should praise God for that because it's a tremendous act of his mercy and his grace. David understands this as he writes in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, interestingly, David reigned years before Jonah was a prophet. He would have already written this psalm by the time Jonah was a prophet. And so presumably, Jonah very well could have had access to these very words. At a minimum, Jonah surely, as a prophet, understood the truth, that you can't outrun God. It's impossible to flee from his presence. In either case, we will see as this series continues that Jonah will be reminded dramatically of the impossibility of fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Let's continue to read in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So we've seen God's directive to his prophet and Jonah's disobedience to his God. Now we see the sailors' despair in their condition. We saw the Lord had given direction to Jonah, and Jonah had, we saw his but Jonah response. Now we see the Lord's but the Lord response in return. Jonah boards the ship and sets sail. And I could almost envision Jonah as he's on the ship and they pull up anchor and as the ship pulls away from port, he probably has a moment of relief, a moment of, okay, I've gotten away from the Lord. I've gotten away from the command. I'm away from the land. I'm sailing off into the distance. And I've finally been able to flee from this command. And then he sees storm clouds brewing on the horizon. 
Our text says that the Lord hurled a great wind and a mighty tempest. And this, this phrase used hurling carries with it the idea of launching something with great force, as if throwing something with all of your strength. And the Hebrew word used for tempest carries with it the idea of God's wrath. And so when we put that together, what we see here, the weight of the text, is that God is throwing his wrath with great force, with great sudden force upon the sea and the ship, so much so that the ship is in, in danger of breaking apart. And though the force of God's displeasure is directed at Jonah, it's those around him, the sailors, that are being caught up in the crossfire. And so often it is with us. As rarely does our sin, does our disobedience, does our running from the Lord only impact us. But so often it can impact those even closest to us and those that are around us. We see here the despair of the sailors. It says that they recognize that they're in danger, so much so they begin to cry out to their gods to save them. But as they will soon learn, as their gods are no gods at all, their cries fall on deaf ears. Next, they try to take matters in their own hands. They begin to jettison the cargo to try to lighten the ship so it doesn't break up. This shows the sheer terror and despair of the sailors because the cargo was the very reason they were sailing. This wasn't a pleasure cruise. They were transporting cargo from Joppa to Tarshish. Their livelihood was at stake, but they realized that beyond their livelihood, their very lives were at stake, and they were doing everything that they could to try to save themselves. And interestingly here, the very same word for God's action of sending his wrath, hurling, is used for the sailors' feeble attempts at trying to save themselves. As God hurled the wind, the sailors were hurling the cargo. And what they find out quickly is that God is the undisputed hurling champion. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves in light of God and the acts of his hand. Nothing within ourselves. Our best efforts to overcome the wrath of God against a sinful man are futile. We can cry out to others and try to have them come along and save us. We can try religion and try to put our trust and our hope in religious systems to save us. We can try to take matters in our own hands and muster up the strength of our own efforts to live a good enough life, to do enough right things to save us. And what we ultimately find, along with the sailors, is it is only through placing our faith and our trust squarely in God himself, as we understand through Christ, that his wrath is turned from us and placed on his son and that we can be saved. And as we track through Jonah, we will see the stark reality that no amount of effort, no amount of misplaced trust can save us from the hand of God. But Jesus has already done what must be done to save us. Psalm 107, we see a great survey of the various things that God will use sometimes in his sovereignty, both to allow or even often use unpleasant events to draw us to himself. And how what might seem like trouble or despair or challenge actually can become the very thing that God uses to open our hearts, to show us our need for a Savior and to draw us to him by his mercy and his grace. Listen to this one excerpt that is especially relevant to the situation our sailors and Jonah find themselves in. Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. 
They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And you know, we might be sitting here today trying to place our trust, trying to find deliverance in anywhere else but God, in, in the assistance and the help of crying out to others, in religious systems, or even in our own sheer effort, only to learn, only to continue to experience that these misplaced efforts just simply end in futility. And God might just be allowing some things in our lives to allow us to come to a point where we realize that it is only him and the finished work of Christ on the cross that can truly save. Let's conclude our text for today as we continue in verse 5. But Jonah, again, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So we've seen Jonah's directive, excuse me, God's directive to his prophet, Jonah's disobedience to his God, the sailor's despair in their condition, and now finally, the captain's desperation in his plea. Once again, we see God in action, followed by the response but Jonah. Once again, we see Jonah continuing his attempt to flee as far as possible from God's presence as he went down for a third time into the inner part of the ship. And almost incredibly, as chaos is unfolding all around him, the sailors' lives are in danger, all because of his disobedience. We find our prophet not just napping, but fast asleep. The ship was literally in danger of being broken up. The sailors were literally in despair, complete despair, and Jonah is so bent on running from God that he disregards it all, and he's sound asleep. And we see the ultimate picture of avoidance to the command of God, so much so that Jonah has gone to lengths that he's lost all concern for others in favor of his own concern for himself. The people are in danger of perishing. Jonah has the answer. And he sleeps. Our story began with God commanding Jonah to arise and call out to your God. And our text for today concludes with the captain commanding Jonah, arise, call out to your God. And we see that when the captain finds Jonah asleep, he is just as incredulous as we are when we read as he cries out, what do you mean, you sleeper? The captain says, what in the world are you doing, Jonah? And the force of the despair in the captain's words echoes the words and the efforts and the attempts and the striving of the world around us, our striving to save ourselves from anything other than by God's hand. As the captain cries out, perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Grayson was kind to add a refrain to the song Hosanna that we began. That refrain came from an old hymn from Fanny Crosby that was written in 1869 that still has so much application today as it conveys God's heart 
for the nations. It conveys God's heart for you and for me. Listen to the words again. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep over the errant one. Lift up the falling. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. The world around us is perishing without Jesus. Each of us, if we belong to him, we have the answer. And we will stand before the Lord one day, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and give account for what we did with that answer. And we'll either in that moment be able to rest ourselves in his finished work with no judgment and condemnation or be standing before him exposed solely on our own insufficient merits. And just like the tempest and the, and the storm came suddenly upon the sailors, that day will approach us suddenly, and we do not know when to arrive. We see Jesus giving a somber charge to his followers in light of this reality just prior to the Last Supper in Mark's Gospel. Speaking of this day where we stand before Christ, Jesus says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. People around us, including those who we might even consider our enemies, are perishing without Jesus. And we have a choice to make. Our choice, church, is do we run from the clear commands to be heralds of the good news of Jesus and seek to partner with God in rescuing the perishing? Or in effect, will we remain fast asleep deep down in the recesses of our own lives and comfort? and interests. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. As we close this week, as we prepare to go our own separate ways, there's three eternal realities that I want to carry with me this week and that I pray, church, that you will carry with you. The first is the lost are still perishing without Jesus. People all around us need to know that they can be saved, not through their own efforts, not through empty religion, not through the striving of man, but through Jesus' finished work on the cross. Second, God still desires to save. The mission has not changed. God's desire is still to seek and to save that which was lost. And so as followers of Christ, third, our calling given in the Great Commission and not changed since, is still to preach the good news to all nations. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we wrap up our time in beginning the book of Jonah, God, I know even in preparation this week, I was convicted at how often I turn into my own interests, the, the, the things of my own life that are so important, in disobedience to the clear command to go and preach a message of good news to the world around me. 
God, there's times where I even know that there's those that I would rather not talk to, I would rather not speak to, I certainly would rather not tell of you, and yet your calling, your heart is for the nations. Your heart is for all of those around us, even those who may have wounded me, even those who may have harmed me. Your desire is that all would come to know you through repentance. So God, as we take this message, we reflect on this this week. How do we know that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus? And so if we experience areas of our lives where we recognize that we're out of alignment with what you would have for us or what you would desire for us, help us not to sit under the weight of condemnation or guilt or shame, but instead use that, see that as a a beautiful opportunity of your grace and your mercy and calling us to turn to you, to surrender to you in repentance once again, to receive the flood of acceptance and forgiveness upon ourselves once more and to turn once again, not in our own power and strength, but in your power and strength, to walking in a way that would be in align with your calling for our lives. We're so grateful, God, that you did not leave us in ourselves to try to find salvation in our own efforts. We're so grateful that it's not through the empty traditions and systems of man that we find salvation. We're so grateful that it's not even in the attempts of others that we find salvation, but that it is in you. That not only do you call us to yourself, but you make a way for us to get there. And so we thank you for that today, God. We thank you for the reminder from Jonah that the world around us is perishing, and if we're not careful, we can find ourselves fast asleep. Help us to answer the charge and the call to stay awake as we seek to bring the good news of Jesus to those who are perishing without you. As we enter this part of our service, Lord, we want to prepare for a time of communion and coming together at the Lord's table and remembering and recalling what you have accomplished in Christ, what we are talking about today. And so, God, I just pray that right now we would just take a moment to pause and reflect on our own heart, our own lives, that we would look back over the week, the month, the year, and we invite, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts that you would just open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to things that may be out of alignment with what you have for us, that may be in direct disobedience to a command or maybe something that we clearly know that you're calling us to do, and yet, whether out of fear or apathy or whatever the case might be, we've just failed to yet do it. God, would you show us those things even right now in the kindness of your mercy and grace? Would you show us where there may be things that are disrupting your desire for being walking close with us, for being Emmanuel, God with us? Would you reveal those to us even now? And as you bring these things to our heart and mind, Father, we pray that you would give us the courage, the boldness to turn from those, to repent of those things, to not allow these things that may be causing a disruption in our fellowship with you to make us run from you like Jonah, but for us to understand the the magnitude of your grace, your mercy, your open arms of forgiveness, that we would in that run to you, knowing that confession is safe 
because of your grace and your mercy. And so would you draw us in your kindness to repentance and give us the assurance that when we come to you, when we turn to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to restore us into perfect fellowship with you. We thank you that is available to us even in this moment. And so as we turn to this time of celebrating at the Lord's table, may we be reminded of the magnitude of what you have done on our behalf. And may we be committed once again to being heralds of the good news of Jesus to the world around us. We pray all of these things, Father, in your name, Jesus. Amen.